Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sisters is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at cohortsisters.com. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into the Cohort Sisters podcast. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Monet Roberts, who received her PhD in biomedical engineering from Cornell University. Dr. Roberts is currently a postdoctoral research associate at Virginia Tech, where she uses engineering to study brain tumors to better understand how cancer spreads throughout the body. In this episode, Dr. Roberts shares how early exposure to a Black scientist changed the trajectory of her academic and professional career why she decided to pursue engineering despite not being the greatest math student, and the importance of both self-belief and family support during the doctoral degree process. Let's get into our conversation. Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, Dr. Monet Roberts. Super excited to chat with you. Before we started recording, I was talking a little bit about how I have a lot of questions about your work. It is in a field that I'm unfamiliar with, so I'm really excited to get to know more about the work that you do, as well as your academic journey, as well as some of the social justice work that you've been doing throughout your career. So before we kind of jump into all of that, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what do you like to do? Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. So I am from Noonan, Georgia. So it's a small town about 35, 40 minutes south from Hartsville Jackson Airport. So I typically say that I'm from Atlanta when I'm like outside of like Georgia because people don't ever know where I'm from. So I, but I'm very proud of where I'm from. So Noonan, Georgia, I got my bachelor's of science in biomedical engineering from Georgia Tech and I worked in Dr. Manu Platt's lab. And I was involved in the project under Dr. Ivana Parker, who is now an assistant professor at University of Florida, where we basically looked at cathepsin or these proteases, their involvement in sort of cardiovascular remodeling or arterial remodeling in HIV, because HIV patients typically have a comorbidity of cardiovascular disease. And so this was really what kickstarted my interest in research in terms of you know, first off, like Dr. Ronnie Platt is this amazing, amazing mentor, Black engineer, was the first Black scientist, Black engineer I've ever seen in my life. And so just him allowing us to be fully who we were, coming into lab with our whole self, mentoring students, still being very engaged with like our Blackness, our identities, all of these things. It just it was amazing. And doing cutting edge research that actually impacted communities directly related to my identity. And I could get paid for this and mentor students. I was like, sign me up. How do I do this? And so then he and also the rest of the Platt Lab, so shout out to the Platt Lab squad, basically inspired me to go into getting my PhD. And so that's where I then went to Cornell University in their biomedical engineering program. And I worked under Dr. Matthew Poshik. And so he was in chemical and biomolecular engineering, and we studied the role of the glycocalyx, which is the sugar outer coating on the outside of all eukaryotic cells. And so it houses 
glycoproteins, glycolipids, glycose aminoglycans, and just other molecules such as receptors that a lot of people study, I think, individually, but collectively it just makes the glycocalyx and so the structure. And so we studied the protein-protein interactions on the cellular surface and how it regulated membrane shape changes. And particularly in my project or my dissertation was involved in microvesicle shedding from as a membrane. So microvesicles are involved in both pathological as well as physiological states, but particularly we were studying this in breast cancer. And so microvesicles shed from the plasma membrane and they carry cancerous material within them. And they can go and basically propagate metastatic or potential for other normal cells to turn cancerous or change a sort of part of the environment and then cause that to actually be promoted or promote tumor progression in another area away from the actual primary side of the tumor. And so I think people started thinking, you know, years ago, people thought, you know, a cancer cell had to go to a different place in the body and cause cancer. And so we were actually studying how microvesicles, these small little particles that can shed from cells, like shed and just go somewhere else. You know, I think about it in terms of like for natural hair, right? Like we have like shed, shedding all the time, right? And so so think about like that one piece of hair that like comes from your head and you know, typically what we do, right? We just brush it out, put it in the trash can, going about our business. But think about this in the context of cancer is that this one little piece of a thing that's not even actually the whole cell body of a cancer cell can actually go and go to a normal cell, the normal cell uptakes it and then causes that cell to become cancerous. That's crazy. That's crazy. And so it was just amazing to help link the glycocalyx in that sort of mode of biogenesis of something so powerful. So that was what my dissertation work was on. Then I switched over to brain cancer. So now I'm a postdoc in Dr. Jennifer Munson's lab at Virginia Tech in biomedical engineering and mechanics. Our lab is located at Fralin Biomedical Research Institute in Roanoke, Virginia. So they're kind of two distinct locations, but still a part of Virginia Tech. And right now I'm studying sort of how intratumoral heterogeneity is involved in glioma, as well as sort of other implications that it may play in sort of glioma progression, particularly in the context of interstitial fluid flow. And so what all that means and sort of all those terms is that so intratumoral heterogeneity just means like within the tumor, there are different like even though it's the same tumor, there are different cells within the tumor. And what that means is that it could be the same kind of tumor cell, but they may have different genetic, sort of genetic expressions. They can have different morphologies, different proliferation or growth characteristics. These are things that we've known in the cancer community for years, even decades at this point. But now we're looking in terms of with interstitial fluid flow, which is just fluid that basically flows within the extracellular matrix or the tissue and also comes into contact with cells that different cells within the tumor can have different fluid flow responses. And so they may actually, so what we've shown in our lab previously is that when you have an increased pressure from a tumor compared to the outside of the tumor, that it actually promotes fluid flow to flow in the area that has like lower pressure, which happens to be the normal tissue. So cancer cells can actually go with this flow out into the normal tissue. And that's where we 
cancer cell invasion. So cancer cells can actually get to normal tissue. And so we've shown that previously in our lab. And so my thing is looking at sort of, are there different populations within the same tumor cells or the tumor bulk that can actually flow differently? Do some stay in the area that the tumor is in? Do some actually flow out more than others, even though they're in the same sort of tumor, do they respond differently to fluid flow and like that actually play a role? Because intratumoral heterogeneity is one of the challenges that is posed in all cancer treatment, not just brain cancer treatment. But, you know, these typical like changes in in cells, even within the same tumor, some treatments don't treat those particular cells, even though it may get all of them, some are still left behind. And so I'm just sort of looking at sort of these different populations and how do they respond to different fluid flows? So I know that was like a lot of different like scientific jargon. <laughs> so if you have any other questions or anything to clarify, please let me know because yes. I'm please trying to engage better with like scientific communication. And I know that we're all wrapped up in our different silos of science, but the important part is that we need to be able to communicate that to in lay because mm-hmm. You know, not just us who are studying it, but there are people who are attached to these diseases exactly. who need to know what kind of research is happening mm-hmm. that impact me or you know, family members who have, you know, people in their family or friends or et cetera, et cetera, partners that are, you know, with these things, you know, what's actually going on? Because it's one thing to publish it in these in these journals and get scientific accolades, but, right. you know, that that communication piece to patients and those affected is really like, I think the most important thing is because those are people that we're going into lab every day for trying to solve these things. Yeah. hundred percent agree. So that was a lot of scientific jargon. It was a lot of information all at once. So hopefully, you know, if people need to rewind and re- replay it at like, you know, 0.75 X to fully understand, <laughs> they can go ahead and do so. I think for me, the part that I understood the best, as soon as you made the analogy about natural hair, I was like, this, I know <laughs> this <laughs> makes sense to me. A strand is shed and then infects the rest of the hair. I get it. So I understood that part. I don't know if I understood much else, but I definitely understood that part. Thank you so much for kind of giving us a really thorough overview of the work that you've been doing. And it sounds like one similarity that has been through your research in undergrad and then to graduate school and then now what you're doing in your postdoc is scientific research around cancer. So I want to kind of go back to kind of like baby Monet, you know, (laughs) did you know you wanted to be a scientist when you were young? How did you even get to a place where you became interested in science, especially because a lot of, you know, young black girls are either pushed away from studying science or, you know, don't feel confident enough to study science. And not only are you a scientist, you study very specific and also very like things that have like real life and real like practical life applications that can impact our health and our healing. And so I'd just love to kind of know, like from your childhood, how did you get interested in science? And then how did you decide to get a doctoral degree? So baby Monet, (laughs) I think baby Monet wanted to be, you know, just everything, right? A chef. I wanted to be a really, actually, now that you bring that question up, outside of just being sort of like really, really young, wanting to be a chef or an actress or, you know, somebody who obviously impacts people's lives, but, you know, take it a step further to a scientist. I actually wanted to be a pediatrician. My mother is an attorney. And so for me, 
I got to see that side of things. You know, no shade to attorneys. They are, my mother's also a judge. So like being in sort of the law field and being surrounded by that, I was just kind of like, oh, you know, maybe being a lawyer was, was something. And then I interned in my mom's office one summer and I was like, you know, maybe being an attorney is not for me. Maybe I, I feel like clients need a special kind of love and I mean, got it. <laughs> I mean, I'd be that person, you know? And so then I thought about being a pediatrician because I love kids. I love kids. And so I wanted to do that. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I won't get desensitized to that. And so right in the middle was kind of engineering. I was like, okay, we can work with engineering a little bit better and biomedical engineering specifically, because at the time that I was going into college and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, it was kind of a, a really good field to go into where you were just tangential to sort of the medical practice because of biomedical engineering. You could also do things and actually, you know, do things more engineering related because it was taking all of the different sort of traditional engineering disciplines and applying it to the body. And so the quality or the mission of biomedical engineering is to increase the quality of life for patients. And so I was like, this is what I want to do. And at the time, so one fun fact, me and my sister are 16 years apart. So at the time that I was, you know, about to go into college, you know, I was like, or thinking about it, you know, going into my senior year, being 17 years old, my sister was one. And my biological father has always been in my life. And so, but also my stepfather, he's been like a huge, like a great father figure, you know, outside of my biological father. It was just something So at the time that I was thinking about going into biomedical engineering, my stepfather had congestive heart failure. He was battling heart failure. And I wanted to do something to fix him. And at that point, when me just sort of exploring career options and things I wanted to do in college, biomedical engineering actually came up in terms of working with devices and and research to try to look at these things. And so I was like, my biological father has always been in my life. And so I didn't want my stepfather to not be in my little sister's life. And so I was like, I want to go fix his heart. I want to be a biomedical engineer. I want to go to Georgia Tech and I'm going to go do these things. And so that's what really inspired me to want to go into biomedical engineering and really scientists and to pursue my PhD. As I said previously, like Dr. Manu Platt was like a huge, huge source and just members of his lab who we continue to be connected to this day. And it really truly is a family. And so just being in there, being in a research lab, being able to do experiments and for him to actually push me to be a scientist, not just, you know, making reagents or washing dishes or anything, actually having undergrads, you know, present in lab meeting, having us go to conferences, having us be able to be a part and have sort of sub projects where we can have our own focus in a larger project that a graduate student was leading. Like that was amazing to me to actually know that I actually really liked science and wanted to explore other problems that were affecting communities that were disproportionately affected or, you know, really just exploring things that nobody else has thought of in sort of problems and critical thinking skills and contributing to grants and producing data that can actually one day maybe help somebody or inform clinical treatment. Like that was a cool thing that I just wanted to be a part of. And so, you know, not necessarily, you know, becoming a lawyer or becoming a doctor or, you know, and so, you know, all black parents say you got to be, you know, one of three things, a doctor, 
lawyer and engineer. And so I was like engineering and it stuck and I love what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked about the importance and really the kind of like the life shifting trajectory of having a black mentor at such a young age, who's really invested in not only, as you said, like, you know, you weren't just doing dishes, like you were doing real work as an undergrad. How did you find Dr. Platt's lab? How did you connect with him? What advice would you give to undergraduates who are kind of like seeking, who really know for sure, like, Hey, I want to do research. I know that I want a career in the sciences, in engineering, you know, potentially to pursue a doctoral degree. What advice would you give undergrads in terms of how to find that mentor who will, you know, not just have them do busy work, but to do real work, which I'm sure, you know, then goes to impact and support your application materials as you're pursuing further graduate education. So I actually met Dr. Platt or got introduced to Dr. Platt through Dr. Felicia Benton Johnson, Jackie Cox from the Center for Engineering, Education and Diversity at Georgia Tech. And Dr. Tia Jackson Truett also works there as well. So I have to shout out those women because it's just amazing to have Black women who are just invested in the success of others and continuing to promote that. And so these women are still there today, just championing, you know, underrepresented minorities in pathways like this. And so I remember at the time, you know, Dr. Felicia was just like, hey, like, you know, you should really meet. Manu Platt, like he's awesome. He's in BME. He just started his lab recently. You should go talk to him. And so I went and I talked to him and he was just phenomenal. He has this very charismatic demeanor. He has a laugh that is so contagious, a really just all around like amazing person, just really just relatable, approachable. And so I sat down and he just went through my CV you know, encouraged me in terms of my classes and things. And then I told him kind of, I think like some semesters after this was my freshman year in college, I came back and said, you know, I'm really interested in sort of your research lab. And so at first he kind of made me in sort of a research, like a, like a lab tech post just to kind of come and explore the lab. Cause you know, it's one of those things where you don't want to push people into directions that they want to do or that they're not going to stay in. You know, it's a, it's definitely like a time trade-off. And so he just, me to kind of feel the lab first, see if I was still interested. And then I started asking questions. I started going to his lab meetings and asking questions to people and really wanting to know more. And his graduate students were really engaged in like my learning as well. So not even just like being my direct grad student, there was Katera, there was Kun Young, there was, you know, Phil, like there were people who were actually invested in me learning things and just stopping and being like, hey, so do you want to see this? Do you want to see that? answering my millions of questions that I had, you know, go to Google and just kind of look it up. It was just amazing that they just were open to talking to me. So that's kind of how I got involved in his, in his lab. So in terms of advice for other people, in terms of, you know, research opportunities, I definitely say reach out to professors, reach out to them through email, go to their seminars that they're speaking at, If any of these professors teach your courses, I definitely always tell students, particularly underrepresented minorities, especially if they go to predominantly white institutions, in the front of the class. Front of the class. That's what I did all of the years that I was at Georgia Tech. I sat in the front of the class. I made sure to go to office hours, every office hour, even if I didn't have a question to ask. I went just to ask my professor about their trajectory or their journey through academia or, you know, industry, or if they had any advice about my career as an undergrad or my future steps. And that way people would remember me 
me. And that way, you know, because this this is really key for just not only expanding your professional network later on in life, but also letters of recommendation, you know, for people to know you personally, be able to speak to your engagement, your involvement, your academic achievement on a personal and, you know, professional level. Like, these are all things that help you. And so, and in this case, research involvement and, you know, me being able to, to talk to them. So I would definitely say reach out by email See if you can start going to their lab meetings just to kind of visit if they're okay with that. Send your CV, send your resume to them in the email. Offer them to, you know, go out to coffee with you just to chat. I mean, all of these things not only are just for your current stages in your career, but you never know when you're these people at conferences, when you're going to meet them later on in life and you just make those connections because connections are important. Definitely. That's so funny that you talked about sitting in the front of the class. I know that for, I don't know if I speak for anyone else, but I was always so unsure of myself, even in graduate school, that I wanted to hide in classes because I didn't want anyone to like find out that I didn't know what I was talking about or that I didn't know what was going on. So can you kind of touch on how we can get, and it's like, you know, it just boils down to imposter syndrome. So can you talk a little bit about how we can kind of see past the self-doubt that we have and to put ourselves out there, to put ourselves in the front of the class, to get ourselves to go to office hours, even when we have a question or when we have a question that we think is dumb and we don't want to sound dumb. Like, how do we kind of get over that? I am so glad you brought that up. Imposter syndrome is one of the things that I love talking about, not because I love imposter syndrome, because obviously I don't, but imposter syndrome is something that I think impacts everyone. But I think it definitely impacts those who are marginalized a lot more, right? Because, you know, in society, we are already undervalued. We are already biased against. And so that is a compounding factor to already things historically that we've been subjected to. And so for me, I think I struggle with imposter syndrome every day, sometimes minute by minute. And, you know, it's really funny because I talk to people, you know, as a postdoc, like in my career, regardless of what things I've accomplished, regardless of of accolades that I've had, imposter syndrome still impacts me. And I make sure to be very transparent to everybody about that. And I actually was featured on a a broadcast myself where I was able to sort of spearhead, it was called a science blender. So it was back at Cornell, but basically I got to spearhead and and work with Science Blender on talking about imposter syndrome. And we interviewed different people from different spectrums of academia, from graduate student to, I think, a clinical psychologist, all the way to like Dean of Engineering, Dean Lance Collins. You know, it's it's something where, you know, as you go up in rank, imposter syndrome doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things that I'm glad that we're able to talk about it you know, so openly now, because I feel like the more we talk about it, I think the more it will hopefully, you know, be overcome by individuals just to know that other people are suffering with imposter syndrome, just like you, no matter where we are, no matter what, you know, it's never a hierarchy, but whatever space or stage we're in in life, a lot of people experience it. And so for me, one thing that has helped me overcome is that I I celebrate my small wins. You know, sometimes it's hard. There are days when whether it's the world, whether it's science, whether it's personal things, I just need to celebrate my small wins and just say, you know, Monet, you woke up this morning. You know, I'm a Christian. And so I know that's not everybody's narrative, but for me, my faith is something that is very, that rooted me in all of these things, you know, and I'm, I'm very, very, very close in terms of, you know, my religious beliefs. 
And so for me, it's just like you woke up this morning, like God gave you another day to wake up and get it right and to live this life on your journey and your purpose. And so I pray sometimes a lot of the times I, have a, I definitely have a small community that I, I go to, you know, of friends that, you know, know my inner struggles that I go to. And I just text them and say, hey, like I'm going through this thing now. Do you have a minute to chat? And I make sure to reciprocate that whenever they go through it as well. And I think that we just talk about these things and just be open and just be transparent. I also, you know, in a lab context, I report my failures. It's one of those things where I'm in an environment that I feel comfortable to where I don't feel as though people are going to take my failures and exploit them. And so for me to be in that comfort space, to know that the people that I'm around, because the Munson lab environment, so much of the plant lab environment was very, is a very family unit kind of close knit environment. So I feel safe going to work. And so it's something where it's like people are encouraging me through the failure. And I love that. And I do the same to them as well. And that's why I always communicate failures. Hey, this experiment didn't work. Hey, I'm struggling right now. Hey, you know, can I ask you a question? You know, instead of me being that person where just because I'm a postdoc, just because I have a PhD behind my name, I'm still learning. And I make sure to be transparent to grad students, undergrads, master students, other postdocs, whoever. Hey, I may have a, these three letters behind my name. I'm still learning from you. There's no hierarchy here. I'm learning from you just like you're learning from me. And so I think that that's one thing I think that we can overcome by reporting our failures and talking about it more, being more open about it. And I think particularly in the context of, you know, speaking to students who want to hide or don't want people to know that they don't know certain things. I had to reconcile very early in my career. And sometimes I have to reconcile even to this day, things that I don't know, or, you know, I may get a little uncomfortable in a space where I'm like, oh, I don't know this. Do I want people to know this? Sometimes people, people don't know as well. You may be asking that question that everybody else is too scared to ask. And also, too, I always look at it like a game. I'm also a gamer. I love, like, I'm an old school Sega, PS4, I'm a Sony girl. So, you know, I love PlayStation. It's always a strategy thing for me. If I don't get this answer, if I don't get this level of discomfort that I'm feeling out of me or away from me, away from my center, it's going to debilitate me. And I'm not going to be able to do whatever I need to do. And... I feel like for me being a black woman in America right now and the climate that we are in, have been in, there is no more room for me to make a bigger disadvantage than I am already deemed mm-hmm. by handed down a pathology that was given to me historically yeah. from, you know, slavery and, and, and other, you know, other racist things and, and yeah. structures infrastructures and things. And so for me, it's just like, I don't need to debilitate myself even further than what is already seen as a a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I need to be that person to ask the question. I need to separate whatever I think is going on in other people's head because speculation doesn't get anybody anywhere. That feedback loop that serves us sometimes as to why we don't take risk or why certain levels of adversity we just don't want to play in. Once again, being Black in America, we are surrounded by adversity. These are our first rows with adversity, by no means. And so for me, I kind of stare those things in the face. And I'm just like, what? You are not going to beat me. I have a purpose. I'm here for a reason. And I'm going to celebrate that. Whether that's me waking up today and just having the intention of 
writing this thing that I need to work on with this with this publication or with this grant or you know if I went and did this experiment and I made a mistake or it failed for me to you know of course I go through the initial stages of like you know disappointment and all these other things but then I break away from them like you know what Monet you tried you executed you did now go back and do it again because there is no other option you're gonna get up and walk away absolutely not you came here for something and you're going to get it. I also, you know, want to take some space for this if I can. I'm an engineer and I struggled with math all of my life. I had to go to tutoring all my life, sometimes before school, sometimes after school, sometimes even extra sessions. And I'm an engineer. So it's one of those things where whatever people's obstacles may be, those things can still be obstacles and you overcome them and you can still get to where you need to go. And so this is why I, I've always had to look these things in the face and just say, you're not going to beat me and I'm going to get through this because something for me on the other side of this. Yeah. I love that. You talked about a whole bunch of different things that I'd love to quickly touch on, but I'll just point out too. one, you kind of talked about humility and this idea that, you know, just because I have these letters after my name doesn't mean that I know everything. And I think that that attitude is really beneficial, especially after you finish your program. I know that some people, you know, myself included, you know, after we are in school for so long, and then after we get our degrees, we're like, oh, wait, what? Like, who are we if we're not in school anymore? And so this idea about continuing to be having a humble attitude and having kind of like a humble approach to your scholarship and your learning and just realizing that you're going to continue learning throughout your whole life. I think that's one way to kind of mitigate the like, well, what do I do now issue that some people kind of face after they finish their degree. The second thing that I wanted to kind of just highlight that you touched on, and I'm really excited that you shared this is the part when you said that you have been tutored for math, you know, throughout your whole life. I think sometimes, and myself included, I was like, I also wanted to be a pediatrician being, you know, from an immigrant family, that was what I thought was my options. (laughs) And so, you know, when it was too hard, I was like, okay, you know, it's not for me. Let me find something else. So I love the fact that it was difficult for you, but you didn't allow that to block you from pursuing that line of research and that line of work. So that's encouragement for, you know, any listeners who are feeling like, well, I continue to struggle in this one class in the specific field. So maybe that's not meant for me. No, you just heard Dr. Roberts just tell us that just because you're struggling in one area, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing that work. It just means that you just need a little bit of extra help. And that's totally, totally, totally fine. I want to talk a little bit about your time at Cornell. How did you decide that that program was the right program for you? Did you still feel, you know, after you finished that it was the right program for you? What are some of the pros and cons for going to school at Cornell in the middle of nowhere? (laughs) Right. So that's actually funny. So I think I applied to like nine programs. I feel like I, and this is not just, you know, to say like numbers or or trying to have an air about it, but just saying in terms of like, I applied to nine programs and I think I got into four. And so just kind of making a note for some people who don't get into programs, you know, when they first apply or don't get into your top one or your dream one, like continue to still apply, continue to just your story and your personal statement and all these other things that doesn't change. You are who you are and you never know what kind of other doors will open for you in those moments. So I just want to take some space because I know there's, I've been kind of on, I previously, not now I've taken a hiatus, but you know, when I was on Twitter and people were posting, you know, Hey, I got in or I got rejected or other things, you know, like your 
story is your story and it's phenomenal, don't let it reflect poorly on you. Because I had to think about that with some of the schools that I actually wanted to go into and I got rejected. And I was like, what does this mean for me? Who am I? Well, I'm still Monet and I'm going to make it work. But actually, Cornell was actually one of my, my top places. So it was actually between Cornell and Georgia Tech. I really wanted to go to grad school in California, but those didn't pan out. So Cornell and Georgia Tech were my, my main ones. And so with me wanting to go into academia, I was advised to go somewhere else. If I wanted to come back and teach at Georgia Tech, maybe one day, they want me to get a different experience. And so- That's such good advice. I just wanted to pause and because that's not, I don't think that that's something that we often think about, you know, like future steps, but yes, being at diverse set of institutions, I think is really, really excellent advice. So whoever gave you that advice, props to them because they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> Dr. Platt, just plug. <laughs> he told me that, but for some people, right? Like they can stay at the same institution if their research works, if the equipment that's available in that institution is there and that's what they're just going to study for grad school, then, you know, there, there are ways in which you can still sort of stay at the same institution. It just has to be like a reason that, you know, when you or, you know, tenure track faculty or whatever, you know, faculty search committees, you know, you have to basically explain why you stayed where you stayed. But for me, you know, it was between Georgia Tech and, and Cornell. And although I love Atlanta, Atlanta is one of my favorite places, even though I definitely am biased <laughs> growing up in Georgia. I went for the visit weekend and I love the department. I fell in love with the research that people were doing. I fell in love with, you know, the faculty were, were really nice and approachable. Also to the graduate students, not to say that at Georgia Tech or any other visits that I went to that people weren't, but it just, it, it felt, I don't know, it just kind of clicked for me where I, I went and I just, and I just knew, you know, and like I said, you know, tied back to my faith, I prayed about it and so I was like, okay, let me pray like, God, where do you want me to go? Yeah. Cornell was just, was it. And also too, from my engineering mindset in classes, I also did a decision matrix. <laughs> so I actually got a spreadsheet, you know, had my, the visits that I went on, the things that were important to me for like the current time as well as the future and just ranked it off number and Cornell came up with the highest number. So that was like my, my engineering scientific background on yeah. that. I knew when I went that, you know, I... I really clicked with with the people there for the visit. And what's funny is when I went back actually for the fall semester, the people who I saw for recruitment weekend remembered my name. And I was like, these people actually meant what they said. You know, it wasn't just something where I was just a number or a recruited student. Like people actually remembered who I was and knew who I was. And, you know, that just, that was kind of the, the feel of the department throughout my career. And so even though my lab was in like another department with chemical biomolecular engineering, that department was also great. But with my home department, biomedical engineering, I can say to this day, I would have not changed my decision. Even with the cold tundra that Ithaca is, <laughs> it is cold up there. I mean, taking a Southern Georgia bred girl and up to like Ithaca, New York. Oh yeah. The blood definitely didn't thicken. <laughs> I didn't know it was five years. It did not. It was cold. It was cold. But <laughs> I learned how to live in a cold environment. I learned, you know, to get snow tires. I learned to get a real winter coat, not just those cute little North faces, real winter boots, not cute little, you know, Ugg boots that people wear in like warm climates as if it's cold, but it's really not cold. Like y'all don't really know that level of cold. I went through that whole thing, you know, and, and learning. So wherever I go or, you know, one day when I have children and they go to places that are cold, I'm able to 
talk to them because my family all lives in Georgia. And so when I would ask about certain things, they were like, we don't know, you know, because the elements, right? Like it flurries in Georgia, everything shut down. We don't have that equipment. So Ithaca, like that was definitely from a learning perspective with that. But my department is amazing. I mean, the chair of that department, Dr. Marilyn Vandermulen, like she was, oh my gosh, she is amazing. She has continued to be a cheerleader for me. My committee members, I still keep in contact with them today. Like these are people who were like big names in, in their fields. And I'm just like, wow, like, yeah, they're still supporting me. And so I, I don't regret my decision. And they supported me throughout my career. The community there in BME at Cornell is awesome. It's great. I loved my time at Cornell. And I think because it was so insular, because it was such a small community, it was so cold in terms of like the, you know, being, you know, underrepresented minorities. Like, I think I grew closer and that's where I really, you know, Georgia Tech had a different feel in terms of community. We still had community, but when you're in like a bigger city, Mm -hmm. you can find different communities very easily. Yeah. But being in Ithaca where it was much smaller, it was like, you know, we were all there to survive through grad school, to survive, you know, personally, academically, professionally. And it was just a different kind of community that I gained there. And, you know, people and folks that I still talk to on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. Wow. So I, I really enjoyed my time at Cornell. That's awesome. The cold weather. Yeah. (laughs) My brother doesn't live too far from Ithaca. So I know it is cold up there. It is definitely cold. What would you say was the most difficult aspect of your doctoral journey? I think the most difficult aspect that I went through was really imposter syndrome. One, because I'm, I'm the first PhD student in my entire family on both sides. I am also the first engineer in my family, to my knowledge. And so me having to navigate a space, right, because it's just me being like a, you know, an engineer, first PhD student. I can only imagine what first gen students college like actually go through like it's because it's magnified right and so for me trying to navigate grad school I was like I don't know how to pick a mentor I don't know what project I want to study you know going through my courses do I actually know what I'm talking about do I actually grasp the concepts to actually be an expert years down the road and you know one day have my own lab and be able to continue this scientific journey yeah Like I said, that's something that I think was more amplified during grad school, since it was definitely different terrain that I was traversing coming from grad to to, to grad school, because it was was very different with that. And so, you know, because you go from this mindset of I need to focus more on my my courses. I have to get my grades. I have to have this level of security. Then you get to grad school and courses are still important. But now it's like I have to get my research. I have to publish that I'm productive. It's just it's a very different kind of shift. And so that was just hard for me to sort of grasp. And there were definitely months to years, right, where I would just kind of cycle through this imposter syndrome thing. And it was really, like I said, it sometimes it got very debilitating for me, right? You know, I I want to walk away. Maybe I should master out. Maybe I don't need to be here. And so I just want to, you know, kind of go back to a point I made earlier about, you know, sometimes you can stare things in the face, don't let it keep you from your journey. Sometimes you have to have the serenity to say, okay. Or the discernment, you know, sometimes things don't work out and you need to go in a way because your purpose is actually pushing you towards something else. But in this case, 
I knew I was coming to get my PhD, not just for the sexy science, not just for being able to present my work and develop scientific techniques. It was for me to actually, as Dr. Platt always tells us, lift as I climb, to be a role model for those, Mm -hmm. be able to see others in the academic space. And not to say it's in terms of some charity, but like I wanted to do the scientific work. I wanted to do that. But I want I love mentoring mm-hmm. of seeing people and their journeys along the way. I critique personal statements for fellowships to this day, personal statements for grad school. I reach out to students about those things. I've done workshops for these things because that's I love that part of things to just see people's stories, help them craft statements and be able to to gain sort of other things or be successful in this field, not just not for me to have recognition, no, but for them to pass it along to others, just like it was passed to to be a giant whose shoulders others can stand upon. Mm -hmm. Where all of this level of advocacy came from is from my parents, actually. Mm -hmm. I the story all the time. And I feel like it's important to tell people because it's something that's very common that's happened to people. And so I always make sure to tell this story. When I was in high school, my parents sat me down and they said, well, we're going to talk to your counselor. We're going to set up a meeting with her and sort of see like what things you need to be doing to make you a competitive student to go to Georgia Tech. That's where you want to go. You want to be in biomedical engineering. Let's go meet with her. So I went to this woman. She was a older white woman, a counselor. She was the senior counselor. She was over all the seniors. I reiterate that because that point is important. And so we sit there, my parents are, are talking to her about me getting into Georgia Tech, what things I need to do, any resources that she may have, what other things. And she just says, well, you know, Georgia Tech is really hard for our students. And so maybe Monet should consider transferring from another institution. And so I'm sitting there, you know, she's the senior counselor. So she's seen many seniors, seen many alumni from the high school. Maybe she's right. And so then my parents actually advocated for me in that moment. And, and it's, it's something that I, I remember to this day. And it comes back all the time where I have to think about that moment. And they said, well, you know, Monet has a like a 3.9 GPA, 3.98 GPA. She's doing a lot of a lot of things. She's in National Honor Society. She started the step team here. Like she's done a lot of things. She's been involved. What are these students at Georgia Tech doing that our daughter can't do? And so then the woman just sits there. She opens up a folder, which I assume is my academic record. She looks down and she says, oh, you do have a great GPA. You should go right into Georgia Tech. And so in that moment, that's when I knew. Wow. Right. Like, you know, right. Growing up, you know, you're taught by your parents. You are a black child. You are a black kid, black woman, black whatever. You can't do the same things that those in the majority can do. Yeah. You have to be 10 times better to just be maybe, maybe equal, maybe, right? To have that equity, maybe. And so that was kind of those moments where I've always known, right? That being black was carried a level of difference, especially growing up in the South. But in that moment, I was like, wow, that woman took one look at me and said, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. not that kind of student, I think. And so whether she meant that intentionally or not, that was kind of what filled the room. And me, me and my parents talk about that to this day. And so in that moment and that level of advocacy, 
I literally like in my acknowledgments in my dissertation, in my acknowledgments in my defense, I acknowledge my parents. I acknowledge my whole family for the prayers, for the encouragement, for those late night, early morning calls, for those tearful field calls where I was like, I'm going to quit. I don't want to do this anymore. Yep. But for that young Monet in that office, sitting in that counselor's office in high school, that level of advocacy, like this PhD was all of our degree. I tell my family that all the time. This was our PhD because we were all making the sacrifices that you made, advocating for me, going through Jim Crow, other different things that have happened throughout the years. I would not be where I am today for you being able to be so pragmatic to look those sacrifices in the eye and say, this is going to be something greater, going to be something one day, whatever that may manifest into actually manifested in me in some way and maybe pass on to my my younger sister and generations beyond like that's something that is very special to me and so that's why I continue to advocate that's why my level of advocacy and social justice is something that I'm very tied to because from that day in that office like there's so many other students that this has happened to so their students it is happening to those surrendering their potential to the limited imaginations of others. And I know I say this, I say this all the time. I say it in other podcasts. I say it in other things that I've, I've talked, I've said, it, but it's, it's common. This is the thing. This is something where I don't say it just to say it for some sort of air or, or recognition. It's a true thing that I really am trying to mitigate and I try to fight against and, and try to help others through. I love that. I have a similar story. I wasn't in high school, but when I I moved in the fifth grade and I was put in like the lowest math class, like, mm. although I had straight A's and they're yeah. like, well, no, you should belong in the lowest math class. And my parents were not having that. So yeah, it's so important. And so it's such a privilege actually to have parents who are so invested in our educational achievement and our educational journeys and progress that can go above and beyond and to advocate for us on our behalf at all levels of our education. It's unfortunate that we continue to find ourselves in these situations where we need advocacy, whether it's from ourselves or from other people, but it's also definitely such a privilege to have a family support structure that does do that advocacy for us on our behalf. So that was a beautiful, lovely tribute to your family. And I'm, I'm so glad for you that you have had such a supportive family along your journey. I'm like looking people who listening can't see this, but I'm like looking at the family kind of like photo frame behind you. Beautiful, beautiful <laughs> yeah, like all in the background. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so is there any last final piece of advice that you have for current black female doctoral students or people who are thinking about applying to doctoral programs as we wrap up? I definitely will say that first off, I will say at any point that imposter syndrome comes up, speak against it. Try to break yourself out of that. Tell yourself that you are accomplished. You have you have more than you need to pursue your dream. You have enough. You are enough. You do enough. And believe that. Believe that in every fiber of your being. Celebrate your small wins. Celebrate your big wins. You know, I know for me, what I defended, like, you know, May 24th, 2019. And so... May 24th of this year, I will celebrate that, that, you know, two years ago, I defended. I'm planning on celebrating mine too. And mine was also in 2019. I thought it was just me who like, I will forever celebrate that because it was a big ass deal. (laughs) That is a big, 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 huge deal, you know? And so whatever 
that may be that like gets you up to be like, you know what, like I deserve to be here, you know, come in and have that audacity to come in and say, you know, because there's a huge line between being arrogant and being confident. Mm-hmm. Audacity. You know what I mean? Like we come from people who were told that they were broken. They weren't going to be anything. Mm-hmm. never going to do anything. And we continue to thrive in the worst conditions based off our ancestors. We are root and legacy. Yeah. Call on the ancestors when you need to, because you have everything, you know, like we are hustlers. We are thrivers in in dark spaces. We are people who are are motivators. You know, we are people who are just, I mean, think of if one of those things that I think I had given a talk earlier this year for Black History Month, and I just had this slide of innovative folks from the Black community and this is just only like a little bit of, of people, but people who have contributed to things that we all use from the blood bank all the way to, of course, the traffic light to the ice cream scoop, elevators, home security systems. By looking back over the history of how we continue to be so innovative and we continue to have drive and purpose, even in the worst conditions of being undervalued and biased against, right? Mm-hmm. Back then. So like I said, like we... We have a strength in us that I think can never be tamed. And so let that fire burn and just go, go for it. Mm-hmm. And any of those times that imposter syndrome comes up, you could always reach out to me. I, I'm a person who I, I reach out to people anytime you need support. Let me know because I've been there and I would be doing a disservice if I didn't help you along the way. Yeah. You know, and so I would just say, you know, apply to those programs that you, you want to go to, you know, find a great environment to work in. Go to an environment that supports you and sustains you because on those days where that work gets hard and tough, you're going to need to be banded around some folks, whether that be in your actual, you know, lab or group or environment that you're in, or whether that be a community outside of that, make sure you always have community. Community is always important and pass all these things along, whatever you learn, whatever you do. If you win a fellowship, pass it on to help others get the fellowship. Yeah. You go through a grant process, help other people write that grant. You go through your dissertation. When people, when I did my dissertation, you know, I would go through and just kind of go through my dissertation with other people, you know, like how to format it or what kind of things that I did to sort of format. How did I get in the mindset of writing it? Like help others along the way. Lift as you climb because it pays it forward so much just by helping others. And so I would say that that is my advice in terms of that. And not to be cliche, but believe in yourself. Because if you don't believe in yourself, then who else will, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Roberts, for having the audacity to be bold, to pursue your research. Such interesting and exciting work. We are really excited to continue seeing what you do next, you know, beyond the postdoc. And thank you also for lifting up as you climb. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and being so committed to mentoring and encouraging and guiding the next generation of scholars and scientists. So we thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. 
Thank you so much for joining us this week, and we'll catch you in next week's episode.